This is firefighter Raphael Poirier for Firehouse Subs. Introducing the new spicy Cajun chicken sub, Cajun seasoned grilled chicken breast, zesty cherry peppers, and house-made Cajun mayo. Just $5.55 for a medium. Remember, a portion of every sub you buy helps provide life-saving equipment for first responders. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Limited time only, plus tax. Participating locations. Firehouse Subs would donate a minimum of $1 million in 2019 to the Firehouse Subs Public Safety Foundation by donating 0.11% of every purchase. Good morning. Today is January 9th, 2014. I'd like to welcome you to this edition of Understanding the Law. I'm your host, Peter Lamont. I'm a business and personal law attorney and the principal of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. There's offices in New York, New Jersey, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast where we discuss a variety of legal topics that affect our listeners. That this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create any client relationship. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you would like to uh, discuss any of today's topics or chime in on any of the topics being discussed, I invite you to call us at 347 8831 and you'll be uh, put into our switchboard and we'll have the opportunity to take your questions. Uh, now, today we're also trying out, uh, for the first time, a live broadcast of uh, the program via YouTube. So we're not quite sure uh, how well this is going to work out a shot and see how it goes. And if there are any technical difficulties that we encounter during the course of the program, we'll make sure that we remedy them. And uh, hopefully by the next show, we'll be able to stream live broadcasts of the radio show. So today we have an interesting um, bunch of topics, and they all stem from Colorado's legalization of recreational marijuana. Now, uh, most of, of us Americans are familiar with the idea of uh, legal marijuana in the sense of medical purposes. And right now, uh, there are at least, I believe there are 20 states that have legalized medical marijuana. Um, and this is obviously something that is prescribed to the hospital, and uh, various states have, have different laws on it. Uh, so, for example, medical marijuana in New Jersey, uh, there is a $200 fee, and you are able to be prescribed two ounces of medical marijuana. Uh, obviously, you have to meet certain requirements and have uh, particular conditions in order to warrant uh, being provided with medical marijuana. Uh, other states, for example, uh, Connecticut, uh, they have a one-month supply, and that is all based upon prescription and what the doctor recommends. Um, what's interesting here is that January 1st marked the first time that any state in the country has adopted a law that has allowed that state to provide medical uh, marijuana for non-medical and recreational. And that's very important because we've never seen that in the history of our country. 
Uh, in fact, and, and this is something we'll get into in a little while, there are federal laws that still prohibit the sale and possession of marijuana. And obviously this is going to, uh, to be an issue as the year progresses. Uh, but before we get into that, let's go back to what has happened in Colorado. So on January 1st, the sale of recreational marijuana was legalized. And what does this mean? Well, it means that if you're older, older than 21 in Colorado, you can buy up to an ounce at a licensed store so long as you have a Colorado ID. People outside the state, so long as they're 21 or older, can buy a quarter ounce. Now, as of the first week of January, there were only about three dozen stores who were licensed and open to sell recreational marijuana. But according to um, some of the corporate records, there are about 160 retailers right now who are seeking licenses statewide. Now, what does this all mean? Well, it means that you can live in Colorado, and as long as you're over the age of 21, you could essentially buy marijuana like you'd buy cigarettes. Uh, as long as you, you purchase them, purchase it from a uh, licensed store, you could go in and you could uh, get up to an ounce and you know pay and, and, and you're on your way. If you're outside the state, you can still go to Colorado and, and purchase legally marijuana. Now, this is, is really something that's heavily debated, and I think people are really unsure as to what this is going to do for people in the state, businesses in the state, uh, what the legal impact will be, uh, what the personal injury impact will be. Now, you can imagine that with 160 licenses being applied for to sell marijuana um, in a legal capacity, that uh, it's going to be a, a tremendous revenue generator. Uh, my understanding is that an ounce of marijuana in Colorado will cost you about $200. So you could just calculate in your head the amount of people who would be going to a licensed store purchasing legal, legal marijuana at $200 a pop, it could be a tremendous revenue generator for a lot of these businesses. But I have a uh, recent CNN poll that's very interesting. And according to the CNN poll, people in the country are not sold on this idea of, of legalized recreational marijuana yet. Uh, according to the CNN poll, one-third of those questions say that the state's new law is a good idea, 29% say it's a bad idea, and 37%, uh, which is the overwhelming majority, 37% say that they need time to analyze this and they want to reserve their judgment and see what happens. So, you know, I, I, don't, um, I don't use marijuana. I don't understand the uh, idea of, of using marijuana uh, for recreational purposes. That's just my, my personal feelings. But I know that there are a tremendous amount of people, I and mean, even you know, adults that are, are 40, 50, 60, 70 years old who um, have, have always used some form of marijuana, and whether they obtained it legally or illegally, 
um, you know, it, it's something that they uh, they they did. It was a you know a vice of theirs, if you will. Uh, I don't get the recreational aspect of it. I, I don't understand it. Um, but again, that's just me. From what I've been seeing and a lot of the comments that I've been seeing online and on our Facebook page and other social media platforms, the overwhelming majority of the people who have posted or left comments are really supportive of this idea of legalizing recreational marijuana. And and probably a quarter of the people that have contacted us have indicated that they plan on taking a vacation to Colorado simply to buy legalized marijuana. I would rather do other things on my vacation, but who am I to judge? Uh, The idea here is, though, that this could be a tremendous revenue generator for the state. Obviously, it's going to make those people who want to purchase marijuana happy. But what's the long-term effect? And that's what we don't know yet. Uh, What we have seen, though, is, and this this happens with most popular, if you will, laws, there's a domino effect. And what we've seen is that other states are now looking into legalizing recreational marijuana. Washington is, uh, is one of them. And I just read a report today about Alaska uh, being that closer to legalizing recreational marijuana. Uh, There's an Alaskan citizens group that has been pushing to legalize recreational marijuana and uh, the growing support in that state. I think they collected more than 45,000 signatures on Wednesday, uh, which was presented to election officials requesting that this law be adopted. So you can see how very similar to, let's say, consumer protection laws that start in one state, people think it's a good idea, and it, it sort of dominoes across the country. That's what's going to happen here, in my opinion, with, with the legalized marijuana, at least at first. Um, you know, we're talking now about Alaska becoming the third state to, to legalize it. I would imagine that many of the other states are going to follow suit, and by the end of the year, I think that we will see a number of states who have legalized recreational marijuana. Now, this is interesting because, you know, Colorado is known, well, now it's known for marijuana, but before it was known for its its really fabulous skiing. And um, there's a very interesting article that I read today about Colorado ski resorts being very concerned about the use of marijuana while people are skiing. And uh, these ski resorts as a group, the the tourism office, um, the article says that they've chosen not to embrace out-of-state visitors who have come by to buy legalized cannabis, creating an opportunity for a handful of small firms that are catering to marijuana tourists. So essentially what's going on here is that the ski resorts are, are really trying to deter those tourists coming to Colorado simply to purchase marijuana from utilizing their ski resorts. Uh, They're they're trying to turn down that business, and the reason being, this is out of the Chicago Tribune, uh, the reason being that they're afraid of liability. They're afraid of people being on the slopes 
who are are high or stoned and creating dangerous situations for others and themselves. Uh, so you know that certainly is interesting that you know you're seeing a, a tourism industry like the uh, ski resorts in Colorado saying we don't really think it's a good idea. We want to deter people from uh, from you know skiing here when their main purpose is simply to to come here to buy marijuana. So that's interesting. Um, what's also interesting is the law regarding the use of the marijuana that you purchase legally in the state. So, you know, at first blush, people were commenting and saying, uh, we saw a lot of these posts on, on Facebook, that, oh, this is great. I can go, I can buy marijuana, I can go to the park, and I can have myself a good time. But that's not what the law is. Uh, you can't smoke marijuana in public. There's still laws against being high in public. So really, this is a take it back to your house and you know ride it out in your house and, and, until uh, the effects of the marijuana are over. This is not... You're not going to go to Colorado and see a bunch of stone zombies walking around the streets, you know, looking for the next uh, legalized marijuana shop. This is something that you're going to have to do in your home. And law enforcement's position in Colorado right now is that they will arrest people who are high in public, who are smoking marijuana in public. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any indication that there will be leeway you know, now that the, the law has, has been passed, my understanding from speaking to some officials in Colorado is that uh, they're going to continue business as usual, and if somebody is stoned, they'll, they'll be arrested, uh, or at the very least, uh, fined. So it doesn't mean you can walk around the streets high. It means you can buy it legally and uh, then use it at your house or apartment, wherever it is. Um, and, you know, I think that that body of law is going to develop because I'm having a hard time believing that you're going to get, uh, especially younger people who are purchasing, you know, maybe they're, they're 21, 22, 23 years old. They're still, they're still pretty young. And unfortunately, you know, we were all young at one time, and we all know that we tend to be perhaps a little more irresponsible when we're younger. Uh, that's not to say everyone at that age is, but I think you know it's it's safe to generalize. I know I was far more irresponsible when I was 21, 22 than I am as as an adult. Um, but I can imagine younger younger people purchasing marijuana legally and then getting behind the wheel of a car because. You know, they don't think that they were that high. And then causing serious, serious personal injuries and even death. Um, so that, that worries me because it's going to be very difficult, I think, to patrol it. I mean, it's going to be uh, more or less an extension of, of drunk driving laws that are going to have to be put into place because... What happens? I mean, obviously, with the laws in place right now, if you're caught operating a motor vehicle while you're stoned, you know, you're going to go to jail. But with the legalization of, of the recreational use of it, 
I think that, that there's going to be an increase in people who are walking about, operating the vehicle, going to work. I mean, imagine if you are a forklift operator or, or in the construction field and you go to work and you're still slightly high. You can kill yourself. You can injure other people. So I personally, I'm not sold on this whole idea. I, I know that whether it's legal or not, people are going to get their hands on it. But this is a very inviting, you know, come to our state and you can have as, as much marijuana as you can afford so long as you're buying legalized uh, dosage. And I think it's going to create problems. Now, this is also an interesting concept. What happens if you go to work and you're stoned? Does an employer have the ability to fire you, to terminate you, simply because you're stoned? Well, we ran a poll, and we were surprised to find out that the majority of people who responded to the poll believe that because the state has legalized recreational marijuana, that an employer would be violating state law and violating the employee's rights if they either screen, test, or terminate an employee for either the possession or use of marijuana. Um, some people in the poll surprisingly went so far as to say if you're in your own office and you're an executive and, and you're in your own office while at work and you're smoking marijuana, isn't it the equivalent of smoking it in private at your home? And, and there's an answer to this, and the answer is no. Uh, the answer is that employers can absolutely fire an employee who is either high or using marijuana on the job. And they can also continue to screen and test employees. Um, the law, which stems out of Amendment 64, gives employers the same rights that they've always, they've, they've always had. They can uh, do all of the same human resources screening procedures that they did prior to the legalization of marijuana. You have no legal right to smoke marijuana at work, no legal right to come to, mar to, to work high on marijuana, and, uh, you know, you could be terminated. So I, I think people need to be aware of that. Um, and quite honestly, I think this is going to be a similar trend in those states that we see now adopting similar laws. I don't see any state that's going to prohibit an employer in any form from screening or um, random drug tests of employees simply because the state has said that you can purchase it legally. So if you want more information on that, uh, I would encourage you to either give us a call, our, our direct office number, not the switchboard number, but the office number is 973 949-3770. We do have an office in Colorado, and um, you know, we're able to provide you with some uh, more in-depth information on the law and what your obligations and concerns are. Uh, you can also email me directly at p lamont, that's p-l-a-m-o-n-t, 
at peterlamontesq.com and request some information. I'd be happy to uh, have someone from the Colorado office send it to you. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's interesting that we've already seen some cases, believe it or not, where employers have done exactly what we were talking about, screened or tested employees, and then they fired them, and they filed lawsuits. Um, the two that I am familiar with, one of them went to the appellate division in Colorado, the other one was in the uh, Colorado Supreme Court, and then ultimately up to the Court of Appeals. Both uh, appellate courts, appellate panels, ruled you know, consistently that nothing in this marijuana uh, new law, the new recreationally sailed law, prohibits the employer from uh, from changing what they've they've done always. Um, one of the cases involve an employee at Dish Network, and and this goes back to even before the legalization of the recreational. Um, but this was in 2010, where Colorado had medical marijuana laws in place that allowed individuals to purchase uh, certain amounts of marijuana for medical purposes, like we talked about at the top of the show. And this individual had used marijuana and had come to work, and uh, they did a drug test, and they found traces of marijuana in his blood, and they fired him because they had a zero-tolerance policy for drug use. And he argued that it was legally obtained and it was medical marijuana and that by firing him, Dish Network was violating his civil rights, violating his constitutional rights, on and on. And ultimately, the appellate division said, no, that's absolutely not true. He tried, he, the plaintiff, tried to argue that it's the equivalent, you know, having marijuana in your system is the equivalent of having a few cans of beer over the weekend and then coming into work on Monday. Um, it's not the same thing. I mean, there's, there's a clear distinction between alcohol and marijuana. And certainly you can use alcohol as a drug. You can uh, become dependent upon alcohol and obviously have the same detrimental impact that uh, overuse of marijuana could have. But it's a different substance. Um, sale of alcohol is regulated, but the federal government does not look at alcohol and marijuana as the same or similar type substance. It's completely separate. So that argument failed, and the appellate division ruled in favor, obviously, of the uh, employer dish network. And that's what we're continuing to see now while people are challenging terminations arising out of the you know, new recreational law. So we asked a number of people what they thought concerning uh, this law and, and whether they thought it was a good idea. Now, we saw the CNN poll, and, and we wanted to reach out to our subscribers and viewers and kind of get an idea of, of what they were thinking. And uh, the vast majority of them I'm very surprised, I guess I'm surprised, are, are really in favor of all states adopting some form of legalized recreational marijuana. Um, now, this, this comment that we received is interesting. Uh, the powers that are 
maintaining the illegal status of marijuana are doing so for several reasons. And then they list a privatized prison industrial complex makes big money uh, from incarcerating and criminalizing smokers, corrupt elements within the law, organized gangs, on and on and on. And they uh, opine that if they make marijuana legal, that all other you know, negative impact uh, organizations, whether it's organized crime or corruption, will disappear. Now, I, I think that that's, you know, very idealistic. I think that you're going to see more trouble with the legalization of recreational drugs than um, what, what this individual believes. I, I don't see necessarily that it's going to um, stop corruption or organized crime or, um, you know, bad government officials. I just, I don't see that happening. Uh, I'd be curious to see what other people think about that. Uh, Here's another interesting comment. Why should there be any punishment at all for preferring and responsibly using a safer substance than alcohol and tobacco? And this is a theme that we have seen uh, reoccurring um, throughout the posts that, that uh, we've seen on Facebook. And it really is somewhat surprising to me. I understand that there's this theory that alcohol and tobacco are not as safe as marijuana. But, you know, you're going to have the uh, pro-marijuana supporters who will rely on research to say that it's safer. Uh, I I don't think it's necessarily safer. Um, all of these controlled substances, whether it's it's marijuana or alcohol or tobacco, uh, they all have potentially damaging effects on the body. If you smoke too much marijuana, you know, you're going to have the same adverse effects, maybe not the same diseases or symptoms, but the same negative effects uh, as you would if you were a chain smoker uh, or alcoholic. So you know, I don't necessarily agree uh, with that point that it, it's it's safer um, and therefore there should be no ban on it. It should be legalized. I, I don't understand that. Um, now here's here's one that I, I think is, is interesting. Making it easier to smoke pot really does a disservice to our young people. So many kids become potheads so quickly, so easily. They can't study, they can't function, etc. It's really a case where the fight for freedom to do whatever you want has a detrimental effect on young people. And, and you know, I understand that comment, uh, certainly. You know, it's, it's certainly something you have to question concerning um, your legal rights. Uh, there are so many other rights in this country that I think that we could be expanding. I, I don't see the benefit to legalizing recreational marijuana. And I don't see how it's going to help our nation as a whole grow stronger and uh, more intelligent and continue to be one of the leading nations in the world. I mean, as it is technologically, I think we still lose out to many of, of 
uh, our overseas competitors. I think that you still have to deal with, with the Japanese and um, the way that they handle their production of, of and design of technology. And I, I don't think that something like this would be um, tolerated under certain, certainly not in China. Uh, but it's it's interesting to to theorize and think about the negative effects. I mean, I could be completely wrong, and this could have zero effect. You know, people could go in and be responsible and and go home and smoke marijuana and you know go to work the next day. I've had people tell me that when they're high, they drive better, they think better. I, I don't agree with that position at all, but that's what people at least believe. So, you know, I, I think really it's going to be up to us to decide whether or not, over time, this legalization of recreational marijuana is a good idea. I also wish that the other states, instead of jumping on the, the domino bandwagon here, would take some time to study what is going on in, in Colorado and see how this develops and see what the impacts are. Uh, as an attorney, I look at the potential risks associated with doing certain activities. And, and when we you know, take depositions or we have lawsuits that, for example, involve a, a personal injury, one of the number one questions that we ask people is, did you take any prescription or non-prescription medication the night before, the day before, a few days before, the accident that you were involved in. You know, take, for example, a motor vehicle accident. When we depose a witness in a motor vehicle accident, now that is the number one question because if their ability to operate the vehicle was impaired in any way, that's going to impact whether it's our client's claim or their, their claim. And, and that's, you know, really relevant. So I see how the risk will increase with respect to um, lawsuits and liability and, and unfortunately, possibly serious personal injury. I mean, just like I said before, imagine people coming to work. I don't, I don't know if semi-stoned is a term, but, um, you know, you're still somewhat high and you come to work. It, it's really not appropriate for an employer to screen every employee every day, do a quick, you know, blood test or, or hair sample, and that's just completely silly. So I think employers are going to have to put forth the policy concerning drug use and then, like all employers do, trust their employees until the employees do something to suggest that they're not trustworthy. So you can see that risk. It's a monumental risk, if you ask me. Um, I just wouldn't want that concern if I was a construction company. I wouldn't want to, to worry about my workers and what potential injuries they could sustain. What's going to be very interesting to see is the amount of workers' compensation claims throughout the year of 2014 and lawsuits arising from marijuana-related Accidents, and I think that that would be a very good um, measuring stick as to whether or not this was a good idea. And that's what I would really like to see the other states wait on before they start enacting, you know, the 
recreational laws in their states. Uh, I maybe I just don't understand marijuana. I don't know, but even even not understanding marijuana, never having never having uh, had tried it or or anything like that. I just look at it from a risk standpoint. You know, it, it's no different than any other analysis that we conduct. You know, when you put all sorts of, of heads-up displays and uh, other components in a vehicle that lead to possible distractions. That, that's just something else that uh, is concerning to attorneys because there's, there's liability, there's risk associated with that. Uh, this seems to me to be some somewhat unnecessary risk, but uh, we'll have to see how it plays out. Um, I am very interested in, in continuing to receive your comments concerning this uh, new law and whether or not you think that I'm way off base. If I am, I'd like you to, to call in or post on any of our social media pages and let me know. I'm very curious to see what people are thinking about, uh, about the whole thing. Um, so that's really where we are with with the state. Now, this is very interesting, though, and um, we're going to have to spend some time in the future sort of looking at how this will affect the state's decision to pass these marijuana laws, and that is the federal marijuana laws. So, just because Colorado has enacted a law that says it's legal, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that the federal government's going to feel the same way. And in fact, they don't because federal marijuana laws criminalize the sale and cultivation of marijuana. Now, obviously, each state being uh, you know, a sovereign, if you will, state uh, and having their own constitution, they're free to make their own laws. But... I think what's going to happen here is that when you've got this conflict between the federal and state laws, there are going to be occasions where federal law will trump the state law and federal prosecutors will get involved in, in uh, prosecuting some marijuana possession, sale, or cultivation. Now, realistically, it will probably play out that the federal government is not going to go into a state and, um, you know, oppose what the state has passed. So they're not going to come in, in my opinion, uh, inspect the, the homes of people who are buying marijuana and they're not going to stand outside of a licensed marijuana store and then um, arrest the person who's just purchased it. I, I don't see that being how they're going to operate, but I do think that the federal government will look at um, any sort of large-scale uh, drug trafficking or illegal um, interstate commerce related to marijuana. So it'll be interesting to see, but what's important to take away from this is the fact that while your state has authorized the recreational sale of marijuana, the federal government does not recognize that. Um, you know, if if that's a concern to you and you want to learn more about that, uh, I again invite you to contact us. We'll give you some more in-depth information about it. But 
as of right now, federal law says possession of marijuana is a crime. Um, you know, up to you know a few days ago, I, I think that people have had in mind this idea that if your state legalizes it, well, then the federal government has to accept it. And it's only been over the last two or three days uh, where some of the topics are being discussed about, well, federal law still prohibits it. I don't think people were thinking along those lines, but it's something you have to be aware of. You know, the federal law doesn't have a um, or doesn't qualify possession of marijuana by amount. You know, any amount of marijuana in your position, possession, even a single cigarette, is punishable under the federal law by up to a year in jail and a fine of $1,000 for the first offense. Second offenses under federal law carry a 15-day mandatory sentence and can be extended for as long as two years in prison. And then any possession after that gets a 90-day to three-year prison term, $5,000 fine. So... You know, this is something you've got to at least be aware of. And if, you know, you're planning your vacation to Colorado, I I would encourage you to do a little research on your own and uh, make sure that you understand what the law is because, you know, you've got to make sure you're buying the marijuana from the licensed stores. And and so there's a lot to it, believe it or not. And we'd be happy to help you uh, understand the law and answer your questions on that. So feel free to contact us. Now I'd like to to move away from the topic of uh, marijuana, and I'm hoping to get some additional comments on this broadcast so that we can talk about it next week. But I want to bring up uh, something that was in the news today, and um, this involves warrantless gadget searches at border crossings. So, in 2008, uh, there was a student, a graduate student, who was entering the country, and while at an airport, uh, had put her phone in one of the, the tubs that you put your you know, laptop and shoes in that goes through the, uh, the conveyor belt screening procedures at airports. And one of the TSA officials had picked up the phone and was scrolling through uh, whatever was on the screen. So, you know, it wasn't a locked phone. In other words, you didn't have to put a password in to see the contents. And um, there was an email or two that had been left up on the screen. So the TSA official started reading through it, and the uh, graduate student objected. And ultimately, you know, nothing happened. The phone was returned, but the graduate student filed a lawsuit and alleged that uh, it was a warrantless search and that it's unconstitutional. And the case was was heard and uh, ultimately appealed. And, um, you know, just recently that appellate panel came back and ruled that warrantless gadget searches at the border are not unconstitutional. And... Um, they they qualify this ruling by saying that, you know, the amount of times that someone is going to search your iPad or phone or it's so so slight that it's really not a concern, but it doesn't 
uh, violate any of your 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 rules or uh, or rights, I should say. So it's not unconstitutional. Um, I think that if we were to see some sort of large scale pickup of um, of incidents where the TSA is going through cell phones and iPads, I think that that would would lead to a much larger legal debate. I think that this incident was really an isolated incident. I have not heard of other lawsuits arising out of this same cause of action. And I think that the, um, you know, district judge and ultimately the appellate division, I, I think that they were kind of stuck with what to do. This is a, a limited incident. You know, we don't want to necessarily create an entirely new body of law concerning um, warrantless searches of cell phones and that sort of thing at the border. And again, we're only talking about border uh, entry. We're not talking about whether or not if you know, you're pulled over by a police officer for speeding, if they have a right to access your cell phone or iPad. Now, that's completely different. You know, that could still remain a warrantless search and could violate your civil rights. We're talking about border crossings here. And I think it was just such a limited incident that they ruled in this way and that until we see some sort of increase, substantial increase in this sort of behavior, I don't think we're going to see anything different as time goes on. Uh, but it is interesting that the TSA official was able to pick up, turn on, and read through under the guise of national security. Um, so it's it's a fascinating little story, and we'll we'll see if anything comes of it. I doubt that it will, um, but again, that doesn't necessarily mean that that same ruling is going to hold true for you if you're stopped in your car by a police officer. You know, as of right now, that would be if if you're stopped, pulled over for speeding, and you have your cell phone on your seat next to you. A police officer cannot say, give me your phone, I want to look through it. Now, you know, where you have to have an understanding of, of um, cell phone records is in civil lawsuits. Because believe it or not, while they are used in criminal lawsuits, civil lawsuits uh, are, are frequently, or civil attorneys are frequently requesting cell phone records. They subpoena them, they request them from a particular plaintiff. And so just because uh, a police officer would be engaging in unconstitutional behavior if they uh, asked to see your cell phone and started looking through it because of a traffic stop, that doesn't mean that an attorney can't get or use your cell phone records against you. And in fact, it's the exact opposite. They can and they do. And it really proves to be a wealth of information that can make or break a case. I want to explain to you how that happens. So let's assume for a minute that you're traveling down a highway and there's a vehicle in front of you and the vehicle in front of you slows to a stop, but you just received a phone call or text message and you were in the middle, let's say it's a text message, you're in the middle of replying to the text message and when you look up, you're practically in the trunk of the car in front of you. You slam on your brakes and, and you end up rear-ending that car. Now, for most common law cases, 
uh, and in most states, the law is that um, if you are the rear-ender as opposed to the rear-ended, you most often have 100% liability attributed to you. There are occasions where you can say, I know that the uh, presumption of negligence is on me because I did the rear-ending. Um, there are situations where you can say, well, wait a minute, there was an emergency situation. A deer jumped out in front of the road, in front of the car that had stopped short, and you know I was following the safe distance behind, but I could not avoid hitting the car in front of me because of this emergency situation. Um, how would cell phone records come into play here? Well, let's assume for a minute that the person who rear-ended the vehicle in front of them argues or uses the defense that um, a small child stepped out into the street and the car in front of them slammed on their brakes and although they were following a safe distance behind, they just couldn't stop because of the extreme uh, stopping short of the vehicle in front of them. And let's assume for a second that there are no other vehicles, no other individuals who have witnessed this incident. And so it's really the testimony of the one driver against the other. And the attorney for the individual who got rear-ended is saying, well, this is completely ridiculous. You know, I, I didn't stop short. None of this happened. There was no kid. There was no deer. There was nothing. I, I slowed to a stop, and I got rear-ended. Well, his attorney would most likely, depending upon how skilled the attorney is, subpoena or request copies of the rear-ender's cell phone records. And what that will show was an exchange of texts at the same time that the accident occurred. And so at, at trial it would be an issue that that attorney could present to a jury and essentially convince the jury that the story told by the rear-ender is completely false. In fact, at the time of the accident, seconds before, she was engaged in the following text conversation. He could read portions of the text into the record. He could show the timeline on a whiteboard or other presentation board to the jury. You know, let's assume that the accident happened at 1.15 p.m. He could show, here's a text message at 1.13. Here's a text message reply at 1.14. You know, and, and so on and so forth. And he can lay that timeline out and present that to a jury. And that sort of uh, quashes or, or, or really um, just destroys the, the defense that that rear-ender would have. Well, although we know that the fence was fabricated, it helps the individual who's been wronged prove what has happened. So in those set of circumstances, you have to be concerned about your cell phone records being turned over to an attorney. Uh, what we talked about earlier with the, the warrantless border search and being pulled over, uh, that's different because it's um, either national security or criminal in nature. And that whole idea deals with civil rights and constitutional rights and your, your constitutional protections. What we're talking about now is civil cases where you either bring a lawsuit or are defendant in a lawsuit and you essentially have 
availed yourself of the courts, and therefore your life, to a certain extent, becomes an open book. And it, you would open the door by filing the lawsuit for an individual to obtain your cell phone records where it is relevant and, and um, you know, sort of causally connected to the topic of the lawsuit. Um, you know, you can't have a lawsuit that involves a breach of contract and then uh, subpoena somebody's cell phone records just because you're curious. It doesn't work that way. It's got to be some, somehow related. There's got to be a, a connection between it. So uh, car accidents, slip and fall accidents, those things lend themselves to um, requests for cell phone records. Also, uh, there, I've seen a number of municipal lawsuits where an individual claims that they were supposed to receive um, treatment therapist under an IEP and they allege that they called and called and called and they could never get a hold of uh, the therapist and you know you ask the person in the deposition you say you've called the therapist numerous times um, from from what phone did you make those telephone calls and they'll tell you, well, you know, I made some at home, uh, but I made a lot from my cell phone. And then you'd continue the line of questioning. Right? So you made a lot of calls to the therapist from your cell phone, and what happened when you made those calls? And the answer would be, let's say, uh, you know, no voicemail, never picked up, and I couldn't leave a message, I couldn't do anything, but I made the calls. And then you'd continue your questioning. Well, do you recall the days that you made the calls? Oh, yes, I, I recall the days. You know, I knew that I called the day before his appointment, the day of his appointment. So I know I called on the 14th and the 15th, and then I know that they didn't show up for the appointment, so I called on the 16th and the 17th. And then the attorney would say, and, and this was from your cell phone. And what's the cell phone number that you used? And you'd give that. And then, you know, as the questioning proceeds, at the conclusion of it, the attorney would say, I'm going to make a request for copies of your cell phone records from January 10th through January 30th or, or whatever the time frame would be. And that would give the attorney the opportunity to review your phone records and see if you're telling the truth. So those are instances where you may have to give up your cell phone records and where you've got to be uh, cautious of it. Those are not constitutional violations. I mentioned something earlier that I want to expand upon, which is when you file a lawsuit, uh, you, you open yourself up to scrutiny. I want to explain that for a second because it's an important uh, subject to, to know. When you bring a lawsuit, whatever the particular nature of your lawsuit is, you are obligated to essentially divulge information that may be relevant to the defense or prosecution of your case to the other side. So what does that all mean? Well, let's say, assume for a second that you uh, bring a personal injury action. And let's stick with the car theme. It's an auto accident. And uh, you allege that you were injured in an automobile accident, and that as a result of the accident, uh, not only did you sustain physical injuries, but you sustained mental injuries as well. And, you know, you, you had depression and uh, you weren't able to um, you know, do well at your, your job and therefore you lost your job. But you've alleged 
in, in some form or another, whether it's in your discovery responses or in the pleadings, you have alleged that your mental state was impacted by the injury, by the accident. Now, the other side requests copies of your medical records, your psychological records. They want to know what therapists you've seen. And, you know, let's assume for a second that you didn't see a therapist for this particular incident, but you had seen a therapist six months before because your spouse divorced you and you were severely depressed. Now, the divorced spouse therapy is not relevant necessarily to the the car accident. You know, I think that the average person would, would say, well, how is that connected? Why should you have a right to obtain that information? When I'm talking about a car accident, I'm not talking about my divorce. I already went through that. This is something separate. Well, not, not so fast, because an attorney would have the right to request psychological records and evaluations. And while you might object, 95% of the time, a court's going to rule in favor of the requesting party, and you're going to be obligated to produce those psychological records because you've opened yourself up to scrutiny. You have said, um, you know, attorney and, and defendant, your actions caused me to have psychological injury. All right. Well, we have the ability and the need as the defendant to explore your complaints, to explore your allegations, to determine whether or not what you're saying is true. We're not just going to take your word for it. We want to see. And that's what the, the process of discovery is. It's turning over documents, testimony, but it stems out of your opening up of yourself because of a particular claim you filed. Now, in that case, the attorney might obtain those records from the divorce, realize that you were in a state of depression prior to the accident, and then argue to a jury or to a judge that the accident itself might have caused you physical injury, perhaps a broken arm or broken wrist or whatnot, but it did not trigger psychological injury because and then they'd rely on those prior records. You know, she was receiving treatment for six months because of depression arising out of a divorce. Um, and, and there's a good chance that a jury would find that there was no psychological injury. So that's just an example of how availing yourself of the legal process when opening yourself up can trigger the disclosure of things that you might not have thought would be disclosed or might not want to be disclosed, but there's really very little you can do about it because um, the process of discovery, obtaining documents and information is, is one that doesn't necessarily focus or hinge upon relevance. Relevance is more of a trial issue. When you have documents that you want to introduce or testimony that you want to introduce at trial, uh, that's where you'll see the objections concerning relevancy, right? Because uh, the way that, that the evidence rules in most states work and in, in district courts is that um, evidence will be admissible if its probative, probative value does not outweigh a prejudicial effect. Well, let me take that back for a second. The probative value outweighs the prejudicial effect. 
So in other words, it's so important that even if there's a prejudicial effect, it's so um, relevant, for lack of a better term, it's so connected to what you've done that there's an entitlement to produce that evidence. That's a trial issue. Um, sometimes you'll see objections on relevancy and discovery demands, but oftentimes you'll have a, a judge say, turn over the information. We'll determine whether or not it's, it's admissible later, but if it's even slightly or remotely rele- relevant during the discovery process, you know, you're going to have to turn it over. So I just wanted to explain that in the context of what I had said earlier about opening yourself up. So um, at this point, we're going to start wrapping up. Uh, I'm not sure that live broadcast uh, has worked. Uh, We seem to be having some technical difficulties on that end, but we're certainly going to look into it and uh, try to remedy those technical issues so that next week we'll be able to have a live streaming show. I'd like to thank you all for joining me today and for posting on the Facebook page. Um, you know, we've also experienced a, uh, a tremendous upkick of, um, of likes on our Understanding the Law Radio Facebook page, and I'd like to encourage people to continue sharing our message and uh, posting your questions and comments so that we can answer them on the air. Remember that you can always call in to the switchboard during the show. And that number, again, is 347-855-8831. You can call in uh, during the live broadcast. Or if you've missed the live broadcast and you're downloading this at a later date, you know, send us an email, post on Facebook. Um, you know, just search Understanding the Law Radio on Facebook. There's also a website, understandingthelawradio.com. And you can uh, you know, post your comments and thoughts and feedback. We'd like to hear from you. We'd like to get listeners engaged. We don't want to just be talking all the time. We like to hear feedback from people. So uh, I encourage you to, to look for us on those social platforms and to follow up with us and to join us again next week. Uh, we'll be back with more legal and business news. If in the meantime you have any questions or wish to discuss a legal issue separate from what we've talked about on the air today, you can give us a call at the office at 973 or you can email me directly, and that email address again is plamont at peterlamontesq.com. Until next time, I'd like to thank you again for joining me, and I'd like to remind you that there's power in understanding the law. With 25% off all new and up to 70% off previously leased furnishings, do you really need a better reason to party? We don't think so. Come visit our new Court Furniture Clearance Center with more than 9,000 square feet of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home and office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. Free food, prizes, and fun all weekend long at our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway. Or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love, like taking those perfect New Year, New You portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. It's the best way to stay connected to everyone you'll heart most in 2019. 
So get ready to fall in love with iPhone XR on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE to learn more or visit a store today. 